If y'all are wondering what the name of this book is, I keep recommending. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. Okay, yeah, you can get it just about anywhere that sells Christian books. They don't have it. They, you can order it. And if you want to find it, go to Amazon.com or go to ChristianBook.com. You can find it there for sure. They have it on Overstock.com too. Okay. But you have to put in the exact title. Somebody found it on Overstock.com, but you have to put in the title: Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Okay. All right. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and pray. (coughs) Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you this day. We glorify you and we honor you, God. We thank you, Lord, that you indeed are the King of Heaven. God, that you rule over the universe, over the world. And, Lord, that you are directing your world to an expected end. Lord, one which you have decreed from before you even created it. Oh, Lord, our hopes are set on that day, Lord, when you will come. Your kingdom will come to this earth and your will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And so we look forward eagerly to that day, God. Please bring your righteousness to this earth, God, and make things right, we pray. We thank you for the privilege that we have to approach you through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his glorious cross and all that you have accomplished there. We ask that you would open the eyes of our heart and help us to see the glory of your person expressed to us at the cross. Oh, Lord, may it be to us the most precious thing. May Jesus the Christ be to us, O God of more value than anything else in the whole world. We ask, Lord, that you would do this work in our hearts. Oh, Lord, strengthen our faith. Encourage those who are downcast and struggling. God, those who have heard bad reports. God, those who are suffering. We pray, Lord, that they may look to the cross and they may find a refuge. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the privilege that you have given us in Christ. I pray that today and in these following weeks, you would open our eyes to the glories that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And because of his cross, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, with that, um, we have switched now in our lesson from talking about the person of Christ to talking about the work of Christ. And um, I think that speaker's a little hot. Start hollering and yelling, I'll blow you all out of there. (laughs) Okay. So, we... uh, In talking about the work of Christ, we've been talking about what we call the atonement. And uh, we have said that in the beginning, when God decided to create the world, 
that part of the whole plan, in fact, the central focus of all that God planned to do in history, was the work that he accomplished at the cross by Christ Jesus. That Jesus himself is the focal point of human history, and the things that he accomplished there are the most important events in the history of the world. That of all the things that God has planned to do with mankind, chief among those is to redeem man. So that history is what we call redemptive. And the Bible and the storyline of the Bible is what we call redemptive history. It's a, it's a record of, of God's redemptive plan in mankind throughout the ages of history. And, uh, of course, we've talked at great length about that, and we've kind of moved on from that to focusing then at the events that happened at the cross. And when we, when we look at the events that happened at the cross, what we're saying is the, the main characteristic of what Jesus did at the cross is what we call redemptive. He came to redeem us from our sins. And, if you will, that, um, that work that Jesus did there is a work which we have come to know as the atonement. And so we've been using this word atonement to describe these things. And we, we have said that there at the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, we could see there God, very God himself, Jesus, God, very God, dying on the cross. And, of course, when we talked about his person, we came to know and understand that Jesus himself is fully God and fully man, and that uh, uh, when Jesus died on the cross, that we could see there at the cross displayed and expressed all of the attributes of God in a way that make it very clear for us to understand those attributes. This is why Jesus became a man. Remember how when we were talking about the person of Jesus, we were saying that he was the living word of God. He was the very communication of God himself to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God himself became a man in the person of Jesus and came to live among us to manifest himself to us in a way that we could understand like no other way. He became a man just like we are. He became a human being and took on the nature of a human being. And then he lived out his divine character in his life. Furthermore, then, when Jesus came to the consummation of his life there at the cross, he demonstrated and displayed to us the attributes of God in a crystal clear way. And as I was telling you last week, Pick an attribute, whichever attributes you pick, and look to the cross. And there you will see it with a blazing intensity like you cannot see it in any other way. And uh, this, is a, this is a very profound thing to consider. But if you will, we uh, are talking about the fact that God is displaying himself. He's displaying his glory. He's displaying his justice. He's displaying his mercy. He's displaying his love. He's displaying his wrath. All of the attributes of God are displayed at the cross. Well, when we talk about this word atonement, and we use that word to describe uh, what Jesus has done, uh, and, and, of course, last week we were talking about the actual biblical words for the word atonement. 
but but that I wanted you to look beyond just the biblical words to understand the concept of atonement that that we use this word atonement and this word atonement is used in theology to talk about the whole scope of Christ's saving work. So we're not just talking about where the English word atonement is used in the Bible and the specific truth that is used in those contexts when we talk about the atonement, but rather we're talking about the whole scope of what Christ has done in the atonement or at the cross or in his death at the cross. Okay? That is the atoning work of God in Christ. And so just briefly to give you a little reminder about the biblical words, remember in the Old Testament, and if you have your Bible, you can turn to Leviticus 23.28. And I'll just remind you there that in, in the Hebrew, there's, there's two words that are used. And... Uh, These two words are the words kippur and the words kafar. And if you will, the word kippur is a word that's used as a noun speaking about atonement. So, for instance, when the scripture in the Old Testament talks about the day of atonement, right? It's yom kippur, right? The day of atonement. But then there's also the sense in which atonement is used as a verb in the Old Testament. So, Here it's not used as a noun talking about, for instance, a specific day, but it's talking about what would happen as as a result of atonement. And so that word is the word kafar. And uh, if you have your Bible there, Leviticus 23, 28, you'll see that it says there that he's going to um, uh, have for them a day of atonement. I'm going to turn there real quick. I don't want to misquote it. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement. And then look at the next words. To make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. Okay? And so here, the word kafar means to make atonement. So in this one passage alone, we have both of those Hebrew words. Kippur is the noun speaking of atonement. And kafar is the verb sense of the word. Okay? And then also we the, the same word is used in various translations in the New Testament um, or uh, in the English, atonement. And it gets a little trickier when we start talking about what the Greek words actually mean. And, uh, of course, we talked about this last week. It's also in your lesson on, on the handout on page 39. But the Greek word that's used that's often translated as atonement, is hilasterion. Hilasterion. Okay? And this word takes on a much more unique sense in atonement than does the Hebrew. And uh, it's best translated as the atoning victim. The atoning victim. And if you will, it's not the actual act of atonement, it's not the actual quality of what the atonement provides, although it is those things in this word, but it is more specifically the actual sacrifice itself. The actual sacrifice itself, or the lamb on the altar, or if you will, Jesus the Christ. He is the propitiation himself. 
And of course, this word in, in many uh, English translations is, uh, for instance, in the NIV, it's translated sacrifice of atonement. That one word is translated sacrifice of atonement in the NIV. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Romans 3.24. Okay? Um, but in the NASB, this same, and also the N, uh, KJV, it's translated as propitiation. Propitiation. Okay? And so when you, when you think of this Greek word, it goes beyond just what, what propitiation is to the actual propitiation itself and all that it encompasses. Okay? And you can see this clearly even in the English translation uh, in the NASB and the, in the NKJV where it's actually speaking of the whole scope of what that person, Jesus, the propitiation did. He was a sacrifice of atonement. Okay? All right. Well, kind of getting your mind churning about that, then I want to remind you before we go on and start talking about the necessity of the atonement, I want to talk to you about um, the characteristics of it, the nature of it. And, and here on page 39, this is kind of what we went over last week in great detail. There's all these biblical words that are used to describe the nature of the atonement. Okay, And those words are these, substitutionary, vicarious, propitiatory, expiatory. And that brings about justification. And the, the, the term sacrifice is often used. And those things bring about reconciliation um, and redemp, uh, redemption. And, of course, those, those terms, all those terms are salvific terms. They're terms having to do with salvation, okay? And just to remind you again about each one of those words, look with me there on your handout on page 39. The idea of a substitute or substitutionary is in the place of. So we would express it like this. Christ died in our place. Okay? And then the term vicarious also means, if you will, it has a substitutionary uh, idea to it, but it's very personal. It's, it's a personal substitution. So we would say that Christ died for us, or Christ died for you, or Christ died for me. It's a very personal thing. The idea of vicarious means that he, Jesus, died in my place, Sean Sloan. He died for me. He didn't just, he's not just some figurehead that representatively died for mankind. Jesus died for me, for Sean. You with me? That's what vicarious means. Vicarious takes on a very personal meaning with the idea of substitution. And then also propitiatory. That is the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath towards sin. So we would say that Christ satisfied God's divine justice and paid the actual debt of our sin. Now I want to remind you, when you think about propitiation, do not think about propitiation in regard to man. Because propitiation is not in regard to man. Man is not the object of propitiation. God is. Are you with me? We, we tend to have a very man-centered view of sin. And therefore we have a man-centered view of the atonement if we're not paying attention closely to the scripture. 
Okay? The correct understanding in propitiation is that God is the one who is being propitiated. God is the one who is being satisfied. He's the one that's being appeased. He is the one that is estranged from us. You recall that discussion last week? Let me tell you, God is estranged from you because of sin. Not only are you estranged from God, but you in your sins are an abhorrent thing to a holy God. We need to understand that, okay? It's something that's very important. It's not a pleasant thing to talk about, but family, it is a reality. It's a divine reality that we have to understand if we're going to understand the cross, okay? God is infinitely offended by sin and requires a satisfaction because of his justice. So when we talk about propitiation, propitiation is that work that satisfies God and appeases God. Propitiation is not toward man, it is toward God. You with me? Okay, then also we talk about expiation. Okay, now expiation is the same idea, but toward man. And here's what happens. Because in propitiation, God's wrath is satisfied and appeased, our guilt is therefore removed. And we're no longer guilty. Because the, the, the requirement that our guilt has brought about has been satisfied. Therefore, guilt has been expiated. Guilt has been removed. And this is our side of it, okay? So not only does God's wrath get satisfied, our guilt gets removed. Okay? Expiation. And then, of course, that brings about justification. And last week we talked about justification. And I just want to make sure you get this one thing right about justification. And we're going to talk about it at great length. But the point is, is that in justification, God does not make you righteous. In justification, God declares you righteous. He declares you righteous on the basis of Christ's merit. So, because Jesus dies in your stead, because Jesus dies in your place, because Jesus dies for you, then on that basis, and he satisfies, appeases God's wrath, and removes your guilt. On the basis of those things, God can now declare you righteous because once the sin problem has been dealt with, he does what we call imputation. And he takes Christ's righteousness and he imputes it to us. Okay? We're going to talk about this at length. And, and family, this is a huge, massive, important part of the gospel. Okay, justification has two main elements. One is, all of these propitiatory ideas in dealing with the sin problem, the other side of it is imputation, which is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is the removal of the sin problem between us and God, but in imputation what happens is God takes Christ's perfect life and his perfect righteousness and credits it to us. Okay, that's the other side of justification. Two major elements. Okay, propitiation and imputation in justification. And on that basis, on the basis of propitiation and imputation, God declares us righteous. Okay? So we, we are as a guilty criminal standing in the courtroom of God. 
until the atonement of Christ becomes ours. Okay? God's wrath is satisfied. Our guilt is removed. He died in our place. And on that basis, God declares us righteous. Not that we are righteous. Not that we didn't commit the sins. Not that God overlooks the sins. Instead, Christ is punished in our place. Okay? And on that basis, He declares us righteous. Okay? You with me? It's an important distinction to make. You have to get this word. He declares us righteous in an understanding of justification. Okay? All right. So, of course, it is the sacrifice of Christ that Christ had a personal cost to this redemptive work. So we would state it like this. Christ was the actual victim of divine justice. He was the sacrifice that died for us. He himself is the propitiation. He is the atoning victim. Are you with me? He's the sacrifice. He's the lamb that was on the altar dying. Amen? Okay, and then that, of course, is brought about reconciliation. And when we use the term reconciliation, it's important to understand what we're describing. Reconciliation has to do with the relationship between God and man. And so that all of this work is restorative of the relationship that God has with man. And now the estrangement between God and man has been corrected by this propitiatory work so that we have been reconciled to God. Which means now we have relationship with God again. We have fellowship through the blood of his cross. We have fellowship with God through his son. Amen? And so now we have relationship again. We've been reconciled. We've been brought back together. So we would state it like this. Christ reconciled us to God and repaired the alienation we once had with him. Okay? Another one of these terms is redemption. And, of course, redemption is an accounting term. It has to do with payment. It has to do with debt. It has to do with an actual price. And so Christ's work was redemptive. It bought us back from sin. It paid our redemption price. The actual price, the wages of sin, was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why when he said it was done, he used an accounting term. He said, to telestai. It is finished. It is paid. It is paid in full. Okay? And that, if you will, is a redemption to buy back. So we would state it like this. Christ paid the price demanded by divine justice for our sins. Okay? All right. So all of these terms deal with and relate to the alienation that has taken place between God and man because of sin. Sin has brought about the desperate need of mankind to be reconciled to God, lest they be destroyed forever away from the presence of God. The Bible plainly sets forth the doctrine that man as a sinner is guilty of breaking the law of God, of violating his righteousness. God has therefore judicially delivered man over to his own will so that corruption has entered in whereby he has lost all desire to serve God. And this is what the scripture says, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, okay, so through one man sin entered the world. Who's that? Adam. Okay, so here was the world, no sin. Adam came along, broke the law of God in the garden, and what happened? Sin entered the world. Okay, now look what it says. And death through sin 
So death spread to all men because all sinned. You see that? So through Adam, death entered into the world, and all men became sinners, and as a result of that, all men die. Okay? If you didn't sin, you wouldn't die. The wages of sin is death. That's why we die. Amen? Are you with me? But because we have Adam as our father, his nature has been passed down to us, and therefore we sin by nature. Right? Okay. So then, this means that man has no ability to save himself. Why? Because all have sinned. Right? If you've sinned, you can't save yourself by virtue of that. Because in order for you to be saved, you must have what? God's perfect righteousness. How are you going to achieve God's perfect righteousness when you've already violated His holiness? Are you with me? By virtue of the sin, you've become unacceptable to God. You've been estranged from Him. Or rather, He's been estranged from you. Okay? And, and so, therefore, man has no ability to save himself. We're going to talk about this at greater length. But he does not even realize his need, nor has he the righteousness to provide atonement for his sin. What are you going to do to provide atonement for your own sin? And I keep saying this over and over again. If Jesus doesn't die for your sins, you're going to die for your sins. Amen? So man has no ability to save himself. Not only that, he doesn't even realize he needs saving. This is what the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Okay, so the natural man doesn't accept the things of God. In other words, he doesn't want them, right? Well, why is that, Paul? Well, he goes on. And he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. And mankind in his natural state is spiritually dead. Now how dead is dead, Ron? Dead. Dead. (laughs) The point is, mankind doesn't realize his need to be saved. Until the Spirit of God opens his eyes in regeneration to see that. Amen? Of course, we spent great length talking about that last year. Um, but the, the idea here is that mankind cannot save himself. He's not even aware of this great need to be saved. And he doesn't, frankly, want anything to do with it. Okay, and this is why, on such a large scale, people reject Christ and they reject the gospel. And they somehow reason it all away in their head. Either they reason that God doesn't exist, or they reason if God does exist, He's this God of what they call love, which means that somehow God's just going to overlook uh, our sins. And in the end, somehow, you know, this nice big grandpappy God with the big white beard in the sky is going to pat everybody on the head, and it's all going to be all right. Okay? That's not at all the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is a holy God. He's a holy God that's infinitely offended by sin. And he has in his holiness and in his righteousness and in his perfection provided a perfect and comprehensive way for man to be saved. The man Christ Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. 
And if men do not come on the terms of God receiving the, the, the Christ of the gospel, he cannot be saved. Because that's the only way for a man to be saved. And this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. There isn't any other world religion that has a Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a propitiation for sin. This is the fundamental issue in salvation. This is the fundamental issue in death. This is why men die. They die because of sin. They die because that's God's holy consequence against men for sin. You understand? God is the one who warned mankind about death, and God is the one who brought it to pass when man sinned against him. It's a consequence that God warned about. God wasn't fibbing. He wasn't giving Adam and Eve a bunch of baloney. He was dead serious. And because mankind sinned against God, he's now plunged the whole creation into sin and death. This is the fundamental problem with the universe. This is the reason why we have religion. <laughs> right? This is the reason why it seems everyone has this supernatural idea that somehow they're going to make themselves right with the gods by all the work of their hands. And in the gospel, a righteousness from God is declared that mankind can't produce on his own. Are you with me? It's called the atonement. It's called the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Are you with me? That's what we're talking about. Okay. So then, and therefore, the atonement is what God has done to reconcile us and to deal with God's alienation from us on account of our sin. God, by taking away sin, removes the ground of this alienation, and peace with God is the effect. Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? The payment for our actions is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay. God was not obligated to save us. You understand something about the nature of God. God is free. He's the only free being. Period. No other free beings. All the other beings are creatures and are dependent on God. They are therefore, by virtue of that, not free. God is the only being who is ultimately free. Okay? So when we talk about the atonement, remember this. It's a very important point. God was not obligated to save us. You with me? That's what we mean when we say grace. Is it not? For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Amen? Okay. God was not obligated to save us, redeem us, or do anything on our behalf. He was the offended party, and we were and are worthy of eternal wrath because of sin. But God, because of his great love and mercy, freely chose to redeem us from that which we could not redeem ourselves. 
Grace is favor that God gives, that is, unmerited by the recipient. And God is in no way obligated to give it, but it is, is free to do as he pleases. Are you with me? Important point to remember about the atonement. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? Okay. It must be understood that this saving work of God in the atonement is in fact wholly God's work. The scripture plainly declares that God reconciled us to himself. It was his doing. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see what those words are saying? They're saying all these things are from God, who did what? Reconciled us to himself. He did the work. He reconciled us to himself because he was estranged from us. You see that? People cannot save themselves from the desperate plight of sin because this would cost them the ultimate payment of eternal separation from God. In other words, if you had to pay the wages of your sin, you would die the second death which is to be eternally separated from the presence of God, from the, from, the, from the presence of God to bless in his goodness. Amen? We don't want to confuse that with omnipresence. I hope I didn't throw you for a loop there. But the point is just that death is eternal separation from God. Amen? And if, if we were going to pay the wages of our sin, this is how we would do it. Because that is the penalty that divine justice demands. Amen? Okay then. So, because of this, people can't save themselves. Therefore, if God does not act to save us, we will be hopelessly lost. The atonement is what God has done to save us. It is the historical events and objective facts of the actual sacrifice that God made on our behalf. Now, you remember I was um, hollering and screaming a couple of weeks ago about this point. Okay, and it is that our faith is a faith in something that actually happened. It is historical. And it's historical because it happened and that makes it therefore real. And because it's therefore real, that means that it did in fact truly happen and it is a True idea. It is that which is according to fact. The fact is, Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. It's objective reality. Are you understanding where I'm going with this? This isn't some postmodern vanilla pudding here. Are you with me? It's not like a bowl of jello. It's the everlasting rock. That's what it is. You understand? This is, this is reality. This is truth. This is absolute truth. Absolute truth. It is not subjective to what people think. Jesus didn't die on a cross because you believe it. You understand what I'm saying? Your belief is just some human subjectivity. 
The fact is, Jesus did die on the cross whether you choose to believe it or not. You with me? You say, why are you so fired up about that? Because this is the attack of the enemy in postmodernism. Nothing is real. Not everything is subjective. It's all about what you believe or what you feel like in your heart. Are you with me? It's not about what you feel like. Christianity is not about what you feel like. It's an objective reality based on facts. Are you with me? And when you hear these, these terms used, these terms, historical, real, true, fact, truth, absolute, okay? Those are all terms that describe the cross. And hold on to that with everything you got, okay? Listen, either Jesus died on a cross or he didn't. If he died on a cross, you can be saved. If he didn't, your faith is in vain. It's the same with the resurrection. Are you with me? Okay. All right. So then, it is an objective fact. It is an actual sacrifice that God made on our behalf. The atonement is the objective facts about the actual sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. The sacrifice of Jesus was the payment of our sin debt and did in fact redeem us and purify us by the removal of our guilt. Are you with me? Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Okay, I think the translation of that word might is unfortunate. It happens in the NASB quite frequently. It doesn't mean like maybe. <laughs> okay, what it means is as a result of. You follow me? Look it up. Uh, look it up in your word study. You'll find that to be true. We were by this atonement sanctified or cleansed from the corruption of sin so that we could be received into the holy presence of the infinitely pure God of heaven. As Hebrews 10.10 and Hebrews 10.14 both say, it says there, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 14, for by one offering or sacrifice, if you will, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You see, the fact is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross did in fact perfect for all time those who were sanctified. And it did, if you will, sanctify us through that one offering of the body of Jesus. You understand? The Bible presents the propitiation of Christ on the cross as a fact that is, in fact, the possession of those who come to Christ in faith. Okay, these benefits are afforded to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And that's a matter of fact. These historical objective facts that Jesus accomplished become ours through faith. Okay, faith is the agency by which they become available to us. We'll talk about that as well. But now then, let us marvel together at the great things God has done. Let us see the desperate plight from which we have been snatched by the life and death of God himself. What amazing love is this, that God would come and die in our place. Think about it. 
Is that the kind of thing we do for people who rebel against us? Is that the kind of thing we do for people who are our enemies? And who have alienated us from them by the evil deeds they've done to us? No, it's not. It's an amazing love. It's God's kind of love. It is, in fact, what love truly is. Amen? 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, listen, God appeased His own anger toward us by sending His own Son to die for us. Now that is amazing. Amen? Amen. It is this amazing love of God that has motivated him to such actions. And by these things, he has in fact worked all of these great works of salvation and reconciliation for us. Consider how scripture describes these things. They are very profound. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Amen? You see all the biblical words there that are used to describe the scope of what Christ did? Right? We've been saved from God's wrath. We've been reconciled. We've been justified by his blood. And in this, God has demonstrated his love to us. Profound, profound realities. Let us respond in an appropriate manner with thanksgiving and praise. I don't know why you sing, but I know why I sing. I I think it's one of the greatest privileges I have in all the world is to gather on Sunday morning and to lift up praises unto God with all the saints, with all those who love Christ Jesus and who don't place any confidence in the flesh, but instead give Him the glory and give Him the praise for the great things that He has done. Amen? You understand, we get to heaven, we're going to be doing an awful lot of that. Amen? Why shouldn't we then be doing an awful lot of it now? Amen? I don't know about you. We don't have anything to be depressed about. We're in Christ Jesus. Amen? Instead, we can rejoice. Be joyful always, says the apostle. Again, I say, rejoice. Amen? Family. All the worst fears that death can bring and all the doom and gloom of hell has been canceled out in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He has drunk the cup of God's wrath to the bottom and there's none left for you and for me. Amen? Glorious truth. Let us rejoice in what God has done for us through Christ Jesus and give him the glory due him. Amen? With that, let's switch gears here and let's talk about the necessity of the atonement. The necessity of the atonement.
Okay, so <clears throat> here we're going to talk about two main things. I want to just kind of give you a brief overview so you'll grasp what we're getting at here. In, in the necessity of the atonement, there's two sides of this, okay? The first side is mankind has a great need to be saved, okay? So the atonement is necessary for mankind to be saved. Are you with me? The other side of it is, is that the, it is necessary for the atonement to happen the way it happened. Okay, I want you to give some thought to this. Why did Jesus have to die? What was the need that Jesus had to die? Are you with me? Ponder that with me. Think about it. Let's think about what does the Bible have to say about that. When we develop our understanding about the cross, when we develop our understanding about the atonement, what does the Bible have to say about this idea of why the atonement had to happen? Okay, are you with me? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the necessity of the atonement. Okay, the necessity of the atonement. When we speak about the necessity of the atonement, it is important to realize that there are more than one issue at hand. First, mankind has a great need to be saved because of sin, and he has an utter inability to save himself. If God does not act to save mankind from this desperate plight, mankind would be hopelessly lost and destined to perish. This is because of the holiness of God. You with me? If God doesn't act to save us, we're going to be hopelessly lost. Why? Because God is holy. That's why. God is perfect. He's pure. He's without blemish. He's absolutely righteous in all of his ways and absolutely just. Okay? Because God is holy, there is a need for atonement. Are you with me? How many of you have read through Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus? And just reading about what they had to go through, right, to make atonement for sin before the Christ, it's painful just to read it. Amen? Much less to have to live it. Okay? Are you with me? I mean, all the ceremonial washings and the sacrifices, and I mean, just compounded one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. Are you with me? And, and how difficult it was for those sinners to do that. I, I, I don't think they ever got it right. <laughs> right? Isn't that the storyline of the book of Numbers? Right? Well, so the point is just that why all this? God, why all this? Okay, here. Here now. Because God is holy. And God wants us to understand what an infinite aberration sin is to him. You ever wonder why death? God, why would you allow death in your world? You ever wonder about that? May I suggest it is so that you will appreciate life. So that you'll appreciate grace. Think about it. 
God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. His justice will not allow it. If he did, he would not be truly just or righteous. But he is in fact righteous, and his nature demands the just satisfaction of the consequences for sin. This is what the scripture says, Deuteronomy 27:26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. You see, here's the deal. You, you don't do the law of God, and guess what? Cursed be you. And again, God's not playing games. That's not just some superficial saying written in the Bible. Are you with me? God pronounces a curse on those who don't obey the law. There it is right there on your paper or in your Bible in Deuteronomy. Amen? Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You see, the scripture says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, you wonder why we die. We die because of the wrath of God. You wonder why there's sin and suffering and death and, and hatred and all manner of evil on the face of the earth. Okay? Listen, the wrath of God is being revealed. God has given man over to himself and let man go his own way. And now man is reaping the consequences of it. The just consequences. The consequences that should come the good and righteous and holy consequences that man ought to reap for his behavior. That's what's going on. You with me? Sin is a violation of the very nature of God, which is expressed in the law of God. By this law, the whole world has become aware of its desperate plight before God and is now accountable to God. Listen to what he says in Romans 3. Verse 19 and following, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and the whole world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You understand what the Bible's saying here? It's saying, because God has given his law, now the whole world is held accountable to him for it. It says here that every mouth may be closed. When men go to stand before the judgment of God, let me tell you something, they're going to have their hands over their mouth. Why? Because God is holy and man is sinful. This is the reason why God gave the law. It was to make it painfully obvious to us that we have violated God's nature continually and this has brought death upon us and brought about our great need to be saved from the wrath of God. You understand? Let me tell you. This is why God gave the law to Moses right here. 
so that we would understand and know that we are utterly sinful. That's why he gave the law. So that when you read the Ten Commandments, you scratch your head and wonder which one you haven't broken. That's why he gave the law. In family, every one of us knows we broke the first one. And when you break one point of the law, you're guilty of all. We all know it real well, don't we? Or if you break one of the other nine, you've broken the first one. Amen? Amen. You with me? We're, we're hopelessly lost before God. We're accountable to God by the law. The commandments have slain us. They've condemned us to death. You with me? This is why God gave the law. He gave the law so that we would clearly see we're condemned to death. Bear with me here. I mean what I'm telling you. God gave the law so that you would know and understand that you are in a desperate state of death and dying. So that you would be condemned by the law. When you read the law, it says, you are condemned. That's why he gave it. This is what it says. Read with me. Romans 7, 12 and following. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. You see what God is saying? That when you see the commandment and you see that you haven't kept it, you realize that you're utterly sinful in your behavior. You follow me? We'll talk some more about that. The law also teaches us that God's standard of righteousness is unattainable for sinners. This purpose of the law is to show us our great need for justification before God's holiness. Remember, we're talking about the necessity of the atonement, the great need that mankind has to be saved from his sin. Why? Because God is holy and his law is holy. Okay? The scripture says here in in, uh, Galatians 3, it says, why then the law? In other words, God, why did you give us the law? Here it is, right here. It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, he says. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed come based on the law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the deal. God gave us the law so that we would see that we're utterly sinful before him in all the wicked acts that we have done. And that clearly seeing those, we would realize that we're in a hopeless and a desperate state because of what we have done. Now, why would God want us to be in a hopeless and a desperate state? Somebody tell me. So we would look outside of ourselves 
to find our justification in the man Christ Jesus. Amen? And that's what the Bible says. Therefore, when we see our utter inability to measure up to or keep the law of God, we are driven to a hopeless and desperate state in ourselves to meet God's demands of righteousness. This then teaches us that we must look outside ourselves to Christ Jesus to be saved. Galatians 3, 23 and following. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Amen? The law is there to lead us to Christ. How does it do that? It does it by condemning us to death. It does it by making us utterly hopeless in and of ourselves. Listen, don't be afraid when you're witnessing to people to bring them to an utter hopelessness in their sin against God. That is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Okay? And every sinner has to realize it if he's going to embrace the cross. If he's going to understand why that Jesus is dying on that cross, he's got to understand what an aberration his sin is to God. Are you with me? And I know it's difficult. I mean, sinners just don't grasp all these things, do they? I mean, we've been studying it for years, and we're just now kind of putting the pieces together, aren't we? Amen? You with me? But don't be afraid to tell people that their sins have condemned them before a holy God. They need to know that. They need to understand. They need to feel hopeless about it. So that they'll look to Christ Jesus to be saved. You follow me? It's not... It is a kind thing to do. And it's not that we don't tell them about the great hope that they can have in Christ. The family, they don't appreciate the death of Christ until they realize what their sin has done to their relationship with God and what their desperate plight is going to be unless they receive Christ. Amen? Are you with me? they got to get the bad news before they understand the good news. Amen? Okie dokie. (laughs) They need to get lost before they can be found or realize they're lost. Amen? Okay. Well, we'll pray and we'll move on next week. Let's pray. Our Father God, oh Lord, we do praise you and glorify you and honor you for the precious blood of Jesus. We do acknowledge, God, that there is no way for us to be saved except for the atoning death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. I pray, God, that you would impress deeply upon our hearts the value of this death, the value of this cross, and may it be to us precious, God. We thank you for such wonderful words. Burn them deeply in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.